Welcome to the Sunday before Palm Sunday. I've been watching who's coming on, and I am noticing that we are picking up people that largely, some of it is people from Revive that live in the Bismarck-Mandan area. I'm noticing I'm seeing old friends from Rwanda that are coming on, people in Kigali, people on the East Coast. Um, glad to have all of you with us, people on the West Coast. And I'm going to continue the teaching. In fact, I'm going to finish it up today. We have been in Galatians since the start of the year. And I'm going to walk you through it, and hopefully I'll be concise, and then you guys will be free to do what you need to do today. But I'm going to want to give a little introduction for Galatians if you're coming into it, even though we're going to be at the last portion of it. I'm going to catch you up on my week, and the man cave is really good to do that. And then I'm going to give some comments on Galatians chapter 6 and give you a closing blessing, and then trust that you're going to have a good week. Um, those of you that may be watching this for the first time and you're coming in and we've been going through Galatians since the start of the year at Revive, give you a little summary of it and let you know why this is such an important text. If you study the history of Christianity, you're going to come across a, a, a historical event called the Protestant Reformation. And when you come across it, if you look to the places in the Bible that the Reformers go back to, Galatians is one of their key texts. It's a transformational text. And if you read through the stories of when have the church, Christian church throughout time had a period where something stirred in their heart and a revival came that was transformational, Galatians is one of those key texts. If you also want to look at the darker side of humanity and see what have been the texts that have been ignored or the text that some people have even removed from translations of the Bible because the implications were so counterproductive to those who were trying to manipulate and exploit others. Galatians is one of the texts that gets pulled out. So even the fact that we can read it is a testament to, hey, we're living in a season of freedom. It's a text about freedom. The story in Galatians of why Paul writes this starts in Acts chapter 13 to 14. It's Paul's first missionary journey, and he goes into the provinces of Galatia, province of Galatia, the cities of Lystra, Iconium, Derbe, Antioch of Pisidia, and starts churches. He largely starts going to Jewish synagogues, talking to people who had an understanding of faith from the Old Testament, and starts telling them about the resurrection of Jesus. As that happens, some Jews will believe, but there's a significant number that reject it, and Paul has to flee the synagogue just to stay healthy. When he does that, he starts to talk about Jesus' resurrection of Gentiles or Greeks or those who have no understanding of the Old Testament, and they become believers. And as they do, miracles happen. The blind see, the lame are healed, and the biggest miracle that happens is the human heart is changed, and those who have been rooted in pagan beliefs and immorality change their lives. Paul moves city to city, preaching, starting churches, and then some people come and follow him. Those who come to follow him sometimes are Christian leaders, but they're, for all practical purposes, false leaders. They're people who want to take advantage of what the gospel has to offer, but try to weave back into it Old Testament law, and particularly circumcision, and add all sorts of legalism to it. Paul writes a letter of Galatians to address this, 
And if you're trying to figure out how this fits in the history of the early church, you'll eventually get a document uh, in Acts 15 where the whole church gathers and says, this is what we're going to say the Gentiles have to follow in order to be Christians. But you basically have about a 20 to 30 year period of turmoil. Now, saying that, we're in somewhat of a season of turmoil right now. I'm hoping it's not 20 to 30 years. I'm hoping it's a few months. But I want to ask this question, how has your week been? And I probably won't be able to respond to the thing and type my answer in, but I'll come back to it if you type in. How has this week been for you? And honestly, this week has been disappointing. Um, I like the church that I get to pastor at Revive. I like seeing everybody face to face. I like human touch. I like getting a phone call and running by somebody's home and stopping and praying. I, I enjoy pastoring. And the face to face has been taken away from me. As it was taken away from me, I, uh, had been planning my adult kids were going to come. Several of them were going to come and visit me this week. And I, Jana walked in and showed you the man cave. Uh, we live in a three-bedroom apartment, and I had been trying to figure out how can I fit all of my kids here. And I came up with an idea. I basically built a loft. I, my inside of my apartment has really high ceilings, and I created a second floor. If you come into my office, it looks like a barn. But on top of me is a loft with a queen-size bed, a second room, and I thought, that's where my kids will stay, and I'm down here in my man cave with my books and my bikes and my fishing rod. This is me. That got taken away. My kids aren't coming to see me. Last night, the governor of North Dakota issued a quarantine for those who come from certain states coming to North Dakota. My kids came here, they'd have to stay with me for... 14 days, or somewhere for 14 days, they'd be in quarantine. Next Sunday is Palm Sunday. It's my favorite Sunday of the year. And I don't know how we're going to pull it off, what we're going to do. I also had to cancel something. A mentor of mine, Dwight Jackson, Dr. Dwight Jackson, had planned on coming to North Dakota in May with some students from Greenville College, uh, doing a sociology kind of a practicum here. And yesterday I had to call Dwight and say, I don't see how we can make this work. So as I called Dwight, an old memory came to mind. And it really struck me as very relevant to today. Get my ears right. About 15 years ago, I was in Kigali, Rwanda. We had entered in with our five kids, and I had formed a friendship with a gentleman I've mentioned, Dwight Jackson, and he had two of his kids. The others were grown, but he had two still at home. And we were trying to figure out how to live, and we knew we needed to educate our children. And the conclusion we came to, Dwight and I, was we had to start a school. Now, we may have had some resources and some wisdom, but we could not do it on our own. We had to go out and look for partnerships, look for others that would join us. And Dwight and I spent a long time trying to talk to other people in the faith community about it. And one of the things that started to happen in our faith community is some would join, 
But others started to use a lot of God talk, started to talk about all the things they knew in prayer. And frankly, what they were talking about with God was the reason why they should protect their own, not step into community. And one evening, I watched Dwight get really, really angry. And as he got angry, he used a phrase, he said, this is the pitfalls of pietism. And I had never heard that word before, the pitfalls of pietism. And Dwight is about 15 years older than me, wiser than I am, smarter than I am, better read than the text that we've been talking about. You have come across, I'm confident, a question, if you're really reading this, how does this freedom get practical? And Paul has even talked about how transformational it is when we're living by the spirits. And some of you might be saying, if I really give it all, if I really let it all Jesus into my heart, but is it not going to have something practical? And some of you might even be critical saying, and you know what? I've seen that. You've seen the things that Dwight got mad about, the pitfalls of pietism where someone uses Jesus' name to just do what they want to do. And you find that they actually withdraw it and they're not all that helpful to a community. We're going to read Galatians chapter 6 and we're going to talk about this. How does freedom get practical? Let me read it for you, and I'm going to be reading from the Christian Standard Version. Paul writes, By the power of the Holy Spirit, Brothers and sisters, if someone is overtaken in any wrongdoing, you who are spiritual, restore such a person with a gentle spirit, watching out for yourself so that you also won't be tempted. Carry one another's burden, and this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone considers himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Let each person examine his own work, then he can take pride in himself alone, and not compare himself with someone else. For each person will have to carry his own load. Let the one who has taught the word share all good things with the teacher. Don't be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever a person sows, he will also reap, because the one who sows to his flesh will reap destruction from the flesh, but the one who sows to the Spirit will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Let us not get tired of doing good, for we will reap at the proper time if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us work for the good of all, especially for those who belong to the household of faith. Look what large letters I use as I write to you in my own handwriting. Those who want to make a good impression in the flesh are the ones who would compel you to be circumcised, but only to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even the circumcised don't keep the law themselves, and yet they want you to be circumcised in order to boast about your flesh. But as for me, I will never boast about anything except the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The world has been crucified to me through the cross and I to the world, for both circumcision and uncircumcision, uncircumcision mean nothing. What matters instead is a new creation. May peace come to all those who follow this standard, in mercy even to the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, because I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. All right, let me get started, give you some comments on this, some thoughts on this. First thing that Paul says as faith gets practical is we're family. He refers to the Galatians as brothers and sisters. 
And I've mentioned this before. If you watch how he addresses the Galatians, it's a candid letter of a family letter where there's moments of great warmth where he uses the phrase, he's brothers and sisters, family-like language, and then he can get a little frustrated how a father can be with his children and even compares them to fools and idiots. But here it's back to it's closing down, it's family matters. Second thing he wants us to know is that sin is serious business. And I'm going to review some things from that we saw in Galatians chapter 5. We talk about the cost of sin. In Galatians chapter 5, Paul says that the legalists have fallen from grace. He also says that those who overcome by the sinful nature can't inherit the kingdom of God. Sin is serious business, whether we get entangled in the sins of legalism or the sins of a destitute life which over and over does destructive things, it's serious business. Therefore, because sin is such serious business, Christian leaders have a responsibility to restore those caught in sin. If it wasn't so serious, we could just ignore it. But those of us who are entrusted with Christian leadership, we got to deal with it. And the instructions are clear and they're painful. He says, we have to restore those who are caught in sin with gentleness. It's not to be harsh. It's not to lord over them. It's not to shame them, but to gently come. The illustrations we have of shepherds or healers or doctors, we come in gentleness. And as we do that, we have to watch ourselves because it's very easy when someone has been caught in sin for the one who's trying to help to think that I have all this authority and I'm going to impose it upon you to lift up myself and say, I'm the right one. And we start to pray like the Pharisee instead of begging God for his mercy upon us as well as another. We have to be willing to carry one another's burdens in this process. One of the things that typically happens when someone is entrenched in sin is there is a cost that the whole community has to share. It could be some type of sin that has come with a financial cost. It could be something that comes that wounds everyone's spirits. It could be relationships that are torn apart. It could be setting up cycles of lies and deceit. When sin is deeply entrenched, it creates a cost. And when I am needing to provide some measure of leadership of something of that nature, and I'm tempted to think, okay, I'm the righteous one. I have to remember this truth. Jesus gave his life to restore sinners. And I, as a follower of Jesus, as a minister of his gospel, I have to be willing to lose my life, lose my most valued of possessions, and say, I'm going to follow the way of Jesus. I'm going to submit and carry the cost. Because I have to remember who I am. I cannot start comparing myself to others. And as we do that, you know, the easiest thing to do is to lift up the standard that you're at and then look for some other human beings in your life that are not of the same standard and elevate yourself. But that's just foolishness. Because ultimately, we, as God's people, have to compare ourselves not to some other human being who we can find some way to say, I'm more superior to, than them, we have to look to God himself and then look at Jesus, his son. And when we look at our righteousness, all of our good works next to the holiness of Jesus Christ, it's filthy rags. And that's who we are 
How can I compare myself to another? In the end of this restoration, the ideal is for all family members to be pulling together, to carrying the load where all gifts are used, all resources are stewarded, our humanity is humbled, and God is honored. In this Paul's writing, he gives us some guidelines for financial resources. And the first one is pretty clear. It says, pay your preachers, teachers, pastors, or missionaries. If somebody is teaching you God's word, and you have some financial resources, you should be contributing to their upkeep. He uses an illustration of God's nature, too. He says, God cannot be mocked. And I think for those of us that understand the nature of our Yahweh creator God, we know that he's sovereign. We know that he's able to see everything, able, all-powerful. He guides everything, and we can't hide anything from him. Everything's going to be held to account. He can't be mocked. Paul says that this financial stewardship which we have is like farming, that we reap what we sow. And living here on the plains where agriculture is one of our major industries, or as I've noticed some of you have come on from sub-Saharan Africa where agriculture is your major industry and is a source of the substance of the people, you know this. If you plant wheat, you get wheat. If you plant cassava, you get cassava. If you plant corn, you get corn. If you plant uh, beans, you get maize. Or I said corn, if you plant maize, you get maize. On the plains in the United States, we can put our farmland into CRP, the Conservation Reserve Program. And even here, we're doing something. We're protecting the environment. We're getting a steady stream of cash. And practically, we get to enjoy the honey. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap destruction. And I'll go back to these farming illustrations. In the plains where we live in, in North Dakota, and if we go all the way south across our northern plains to the state of Texas, we all we have to remember is a little over 80 years ago when the dust ball came and our ancestors had had the habit of tilling up every inch of ground. And we almost destroyed our our agricultural ways of life. We almost destroyed our environment. Greed catches our whole community if we reap destruction. And a flip side to that, if we look at the land and we just let it go to waste and we have no plans for it, we're all going to go hungry. If we sow to the flesh, we will reap destruction. But we will be rewarded for spiritual decisions and actions. Both in this world and the one to come, our greatest rewards are these family-like relationships in a world that will fragment, that will divide, that will say, I, the individual, have all rights, and we all just fragment. Our great reward is the family-like relationship. Another great reward is significance in a world that degrades us. Therefore, don't get tired because a harvest will come. As we know that the harvest is coming, what do we do? How do we look at others? Well, we are to work for the good of all. I want to make a couple quick points about how do we even look at this as we discuss economic theories. Um, those of you that know my family know I have a son who's a, working on a PhD in a, 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 economics at Notre Dame. If you walk into my library, you'll start to notice I've got a section of economic books. I'm an armchair economist. And our national leaders, our banking leaders, our business leaders can try to create policies that will lead to wealth. 
But one of the things that they cannot do is go into the human heart. And I want to point this out. If our mass numbers, if all we do as individual humans is try to take care of us, no matter what our economic theory, it's going to lead to destruction. The reasons that we should labor for prosperity and wealth is because we want to be generous to our community. We can't put aside our faith when we're talking about economic matters. The priority of the giving that Paul writes about here, and he's giving you something practical of what the money should be used for. One is to be paying the staff practically. It's paying those who are teaching. The other should be the priority of the household, the family of faith. I have noticed in the last two weeks the conversations I'm having with other pastors, the emails I'm getting, the discussions I'm seeing happening on Facebook groups amongst church leaders, and we ourselves are having at Revive, is recognizing that we're going to have to adjust our church finances. All of us who are being discerning, and all we have to do is pick up the business page of the Sunday paper or look at it online today, our country, our world is economically suffering. People are losing their job. People who have been selling can't sell for two weeks. It's amazing to me how two weeks shows how vulnerable even the most wealthy are. And what I'm seeing is an acknowledgement that suffering is here and is coming because of the coronavirus epidemic pandemic. Therefore, those of us who have some measure of resources, those of us that are leading Christian churches or organizations, we need to go back to our systems and we need to tweak them and we need to look at our savings and we need to think, how can we be generous so that we can get our community through this pandemic? As Paul's closing this out, the freedom has been made practical. He's talked about how we've got to overcome sin, how we gently restore. He's talked about the economic resources. He then reminds the Galatian church of who he is. He says, I'm having to write with these large letters. And I think that's a reminder of his physical ailment or his loneliness. His letters are large and we can guess a little bit, but it's quite likely either his eyes are so poor that he has to write big letters in order to see what he's doing, or his hands are in some ways crippled and he can't write in fine ways. And then he has to do it himself. He doesn't have a secretary. He's at some place where he's alone. He can't delegate. He can't say the words and someone who is better able to write rights. He's got to do it himself and it doesn't look pretty. He talks about the circumcisers. They only want you to be circumcised because they're trying to avoid persecution. They want to look at these churches in Galatia and get them to do something so that the circumcisers have something to boast about. Practically, I'm going to make two points and I think the text would say this is a sound application. If today you're living in a humble circumstance, you don't have a lot of resources, or you're in a place where you're going to have to ask for help, be very cautious when you ask for help if a Christian leader steps in and they start to use you as a prop. If you're being used as a prop to tell a story where somebody other than God is the hero of the church story, I'd take a pause and put some distance between you and that person. Let me also say, if you are somebody who has authority and resources, and you look at somebody who is struggling right now, and you think this is an opportunity for me to take a photo of me helping them and put it on Facebook, put a pause on that one. 
This is a moment where we have to work for the common good and keep lifting up Jesus as the source of all of our goodness. Because this is the reminder of what ultimately matters. We must crucify the attractions of the world to be followers of Jesus. Crucifixion is bloody, gruesome, painful, brutal. And what it means is we as Christ's followers have to look at all of the attractions of the flesh, and maybe even for me this week it was recognizing that I love my kids and I just couldn't wait for them to be here and they're gone. I'm not going to see them for at least a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of months. I crucify all the things that I'm looking forward to. For our new creation is our testimony. The last reminder in this book is that Paul says, I bear the marks of Jesus. I think he's talking about scars on his body from physical persecution. And because of these scars, don't give me trouble. Let me close with a closing benediction. I've said this every week. I'll be reading from Galatians chapter 1, verse 3 to 5 from the New Living Translation. May God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. Jesus gave his life for our sins just as God our Father planned in order to rescue us from the evil world in which we live. All glory to God forever and ever. Amen. Go with God.